Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is Ion Veterans Weekend, a roundup of the week's most important stories affecting those who served. Presented by University of Maryland Global Campus. There are nearly 20 million, 20 million military, military veterans, veterans in, in the, the U.S. Each week, we focus on their stories. Powered by ConnectingVets.com. This, this is CBS Ion Veterans. Ion Veterans. Welcome to another edition of CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. This hour, we're going to hear John Stewart fight for veterans. If we're going to make them fight our wars and then come home and fight for their lives, that, that has to change. That's just a model that has to change. A veteran and retired NYPD sergeant talk about America's racial issues from the side of law enforcement. The fact that somebody goes out and says, I want to pull over a black guy. Uh, tonight I want to pull over a Chinese guy. It, it doesn't happen. It may seem like that happens and that there's a disproportionate amount, but it's really, I think it's, it's over-exaggerated. And we'll look back at an interesting and lesser-known anniversary from earlier this week. Now, in our first segment, we're going to talk about toxic burn pits and John Stewart and how the two intersect in Washington, D.C. And here to share more with us about that is our Capitol Hill correspondent from ConnectingVets.com, Miss Abby Bennett. Abby, how are you? I'm great, Phil. How are you? Really good and uh, interested in your article that was out earlier this week about John Stewart's testimony and John Stewart's contributions to the burn pit situation. Uh, you've reported a lot on this and... 
Uh, I want to say you did a series earlier this year, a multi-part series on the deadly effects that burn pits are having on Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. Um, explain before we get into the forum with John Stewart, uh, explain a little bit about what the burn pits are and the damage that you've personally reported on. Sure. So burn pits were sort of the most convenient way for the military in a lot of different places, but particularly Afghanistan and Iraq, to dispose of their trash. Burn pits could be, you know, all different sizes, but some were, you know, several acres worth of uh, just trash dumped in holes dug in the ground, covered in jet fuel, and lit on fire. Um, unfortunately, that releases an enormous number of toxins into the air, which can be very harmful. Um, and I, I don't think that that's really surprising. Uh, but for our service members, for our soldiers who were stationed overseas, uh, whether it was at a forward operating base or wherever they were in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and some other countries as well, many of them lived, ate, slept, worked pretty close to these burn pits. Mm. And so some of the previous reporting that I have done, including the series you mentioned uh, that we called the Toxic Inferno series, was talking to families of veterans who have actually died because of their exposure to um, these burn pits. And what did they die of, if I can ask? So for the, the families that I spoke to, they died of um, some pretty rare types of cancers um, that are not necessarily common in younger men, for example. Um, and then I also spoke to a soldier who he and his wife were having a baby um, and the baby did not make it to term. The baby did not survive because she had so many horrific birth defects um, that he and his family um, and the doctors believe also could be tied to his toxic exposure. Mm. Just so sad and so horrific and uh, shows you, you know, the true cost of war. And now fast forward to this forum that occurred earlier this week. And um, as you'd stated in your article, it's a Washington Post live online forum. It was hosted by writer David Ignatius. And what were some of your big takeaways from each speaker? And let's just start with uh, the one that, you know, everybody kind of talks about because he's gone from comedy to activism. But of course, the legend of The Daily Show, Jon Stewart, was there. And he's been really integral with getting the benefits secured for the 9-11 first responders. Uh, it was his lobbying efforts that really led the charge and got Congress to wake the hell up. Um, what did he share yesterday? Absolutely. So John Stewart has been a big ally for 9-11 um, for first responders and survivors. And he sort of has taken that and transitioned it to being an advocate for veterans and toxic exposure, specifically burn pits, because a lot of the issues that the 9-11 first responders were dealing with as far as their health is very similar to what service members and veterans are dealing with, and it makes a lot of sense. So this week, John Stewart was talking about the broader issue of the cost of war and how that cost should not be on the veterans themselves. You know, he, he said, we've gotten really, really good in this country at saying we support the military and we put on the flag pin and we thank them for their service and we give them that 10% coupon for appetizers at Chili's. 
But the truth is, structurally, we have not done enough to address the wounds of war that they come home with, and the system is set up to deny them benefits. And so he, he talked a lot about how difficult it is to navigate the bureaucracy of the VA and how difficult it is to get benefits when you've been exposed to these toxins and how that relates to the struggle of, for example, veterans of Vietnam exposed to Agent Orange who still decades later are struggling for those benefits. And I think what everybody on the panel certainly agreed about is that we don't want that to happen to this generation of vets. And so one thing that John brought up that is a little bit different than maybe some things that we've heard from advocates before is he said that he believes that people who profit from war, war profiteers, should have to kick in money to help pay for veterans' care. And I, I know this is probably controversial, but I believe that in the way that oil and gas companies have to kick in a 10% contingency on spills, I think war profiteers should kick in a 10% contingency plan that so that Derek and the VSOs and the frontline uh, workers and veterans don't have to always come hat in hand begging for money because their brothers and sisters are still dying from the things that they saw and faced in, in downrange war zones. Mm-hmm. His point, well taken. I'm glad to see he's on the team. Um, there were other speakers there as part of this forum. One of them was Wounded Warrior Project's Derek Fronebarger. Um, share with me a little bit about what he shared. Sure. So Derek was great. He brought up something that is so important to understand, and you know, plenty of vets understand this, but the American citizens in this country don't have a great understanding that you know, just because you're a vet doesn't mean you get health care. It doesn't mean you get full coverage for everything. You know, everything has to be service connected in order for you to get certain amounts of coverage. And so he explained that and he explained how difficult it is to get presumptive conditions at VA, where VA has a list of conditions tied to something in service like a toxic exposure that are automatically covered. If you were a veteran and you served in this area and you and it's documented that you were exposed to this chemical or whatever it is, then all of these health conditions, if you have them, should be covered. But that's really difficult to get to that point. It's very difficult to get to the point where VA lists things and directly connects them to different service injuries or exposures. And that's because VA wants scientific evidence, hard evidence that ties that exposure to those illnesses. The problem with that is scientific research that definitively ties one thing to another takes a long time and a lot of money and a lot of effort. And everyone on the panel's point, including Derek and John, was we have veterans dying today. They can't wait decades and decades like the Agent Orange veterans waited to get these benefits. We don't want to repeat those same mistakes. Is there a way that we can get Congress start getting these veterans the care that they need now? I know the sausage making is ugly and not a process anybody likes to see, but I'm damn glad that you're covering it. Uh, you can read more about this. American war profiteers should share the cost of veterans care. John Stewart says so. Abby Bennett reports on ConnectingVets.com. Look for that, and uh, I'll look for you to help uh, take us through the next chapter of this as we get ready to see if those bills can pass and we can find some help for our veterans, brothers and sisters. 
Absolutely. Thank you, Phil. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And for the rest of this hour, we're going to talk about racism from a unique perspective. We've talked with the black community. We've talked to my friends and my colleagues that just happen to be black guys. But I wanted to share for this segment and the next one, um, the perspective of law enforcement. And I'm lucky that I've been able to sit in this seat and interview some incredibly smart and experienced individuals who love this country and are great American veterans. And our next guest fits that bill to a T. We first met when we talked about his book, Brooklyn to Baghdad, an NYPD intelligence cop fights terror in Iraq. But Christopher Strom not only is a former NYPD intelligence sergeant, but he was a former devil dog and a United States Marine. And didn't just serve our country as a Marine, but was asked to go back after he was a retired law enforcement officer to go serve on a special task force to help fight terrorists and track down, along with a group of special forces soldiers, the elusive people behind IEDs and has saved countless lives through his work in Iraq. And I'm pleased to be joined right now by Christopher Strom. Chris, how are you? Hey, very good, Phil. Thank you. Really good to have you back. First, let's just jump right to it. What have you seen when you look at some of these videos, when you look at some of these situations that uh, law enforcement engages in and they result in murders? Um, through the eyes of a former law enforcement professional dedicated to protecting us, what do you see? Well, I, you know, like everybody else that saw the, the uh, police officers in Minnesota, I, I don't know what they were thinking. I, I mean, I, I don't understand how... Uh, Somebody can tell you, uh, as a suspect, who's handcuffed, I can't breathe, and you, you just continue to apply pressure on, on the guy's neck. Um, I don't know how three other officers stand there. Uh, and at some point, there's some debate. I don't know whether it's true or not. I'm not that clued in on the investigation, but it seems like some of the officers were saying, come on, man, let you know, let him up, or let's get him in the car, or something to that effect. But I, I, I don't understand how... Uh, insane that is and how sanity didn't prevail and how these other officers didn't finally just say uh, what are we waiting for we have a car we have a person in custody why aren't we putting him in the car and and leaving i i don't understand that that particular situation Mm. i know it kind of boggles the mind and i know that there are so many law enforcement officers out there so many people uh that want the best for this country, that care for their fellow man, that are simply trying to do the job. And that's why I'm curious to unpack this with you. Um, Let's start with a couple myths. There are those that say that nobody steps up or jumps in or interrupts one of these scenarios from happening because there is a structural flaw with all of the police departments. They stem from organized brigades that used to round up slaves. Look, I I know you and we've spent enough time on the phone and, you know, in the studio together to know that I trust what's in your heart is good. Share with me what you think when people say there's a structural problem with racism woven into the very being that is the police force. Well, you know, I, I can tell you in the NYPD, um, I don't know what the exact demographic breakdown is now, but I mean, even when I was a police officer and then later a sergeant, um, it had to be about 30 some odd percent other than white. So, you know, 
uh, I don't know what the exact, again, I don't have the figures in front of me, what the demographic uh, breakdown is in terms of black and white, but, I mean, there wasn't any preaching you couldn't go into that there wasn't everybody, a group of everybody, and it was representative of whatever that percentage was, female, male, uh, black, uh, Asian, um, you know, Hispanic. Um, I mean, my whole narcotics team was, was, it was like the United Nations of people. So I, I, I didn't see that. It certainly wasn't tolerated. Um, I'm very close to these people to this day that, that are non-white. Uh, we love each other. We say we love each other on the phone. And I know if there was a problem, if something happened to me, uh, my wife could call any one of these people, and there wouldn't be any questions. It would just be like, where do I need to go? And, and, and they would be there for me, uh, even to this day. And I'm retired since 2007. So this talk about racism, um, I mean, if you're working with people that are non-white, I mean, I, I just don't see how that flies. It just defies any kind of um, reality, any reality that I'm aware of. Now, were there ever officers that you became aware of in the NYPD that did you ever find out kind of in hindsight that somebody that you'd worked with had extremist views and just kept them under wraps? I, I, I have to be honest with you and say no. Um, I do remember uh, being involved uh, in situations where maybe cops were a little bit heavy-handed. And when I say heavy-handed, um, you know, many years ago, before the phone, the iPhones and the camera phones and all these other things, you know, if somebody got lippy with a cop, you know, it was it was bad for that person. I don't care if, if they were white or black. That that was the, the one thing I want to make clear about. So I don't think in terms of a racial standpoint um, that bears out. But in terms of being maybe a little bit heavy-handed, uh, before the video cameras that were put on cops that are on there today. Yeah, those people existed. Um, but generally speaking, everybody knew who those people were. And if you knew who that person was, uh, it's not that you might want to uh, pick up the phone and drop a dime, as they would say, you know, make a phone call through, you know, internal affairs. But certainly you would make it known to the desk officer, if you were a police officer, hey, I really don't want to work with this guy. Uh, and, and everybody kind of knew. And once that started to circulate within the precinct, and I'm just speaking from my experience, um, if that person developed a reputation, they generally got other assignments. Um, they were removed from patrol. Or if they weren't removed from patrol, eventually they undid themselves. In other words, maybe maybe there, were, uh, there was an excessive force complaint that was justified. It went through the whole uh, chain of command. And when I'm talking about excessive force, I'm talking about uh, that somebody was actually arrested. Um, and we had a rule, you know, cuffs on, you know, hands off. That's it. If the cuffs weren't on and this guy's fighting back with you, well, I mean, you know, maybe he, maybe he didn't fare out so well. But once the cuffs were on, that was the rule. You, you, you know, it was hands off, get the guy to the precinct, or if you need medical attention, you, you brought him to the hospital. Share with everybody again, I know that, you know, we've spoke of this in our last interview, but again, the division that you were with, you were an intelligence sergeant, but you were, uh, share with me a little bit about what your job description was with the NYPD. But my job was basically uh, post 9-11 to answer our complaints and people's concerns about things that might have a nexus to terrorism. So, um, you know, I give the example of the, of the train from our last uh, uh, interview, you know, there was an explosion in the subway station or... Maybe somebody is at a Home Depot and um, the, the clerk is, is nervous about this person because all he's buying is nuts but no bulk. Or he's buying nails by the pounds. And, you know, 
in their mind, they feel like that might be suspicious or could have a nexus to terrorism. So we would get these jobs through the Joint Terrorism Task Force, and we actually, um, you know, no call was uh, answered from the desk. You actually had to physically talk to somebody and interview them, maybe review some videotapes and surveillance and find out why did this guy buy all these nails or all these bolts uh, or all these nuts, rather, without any bolts. And, you know, nine out of ten times, it turned out to be there's a logical explanation for it. But every once in a while, there wasn't a logical explanation for it. And as we dug deeper, maybe we opened up a case, we did some surveillance, and then we found that not only was he buying from this Home Depot, but he was buying from three other Home Depots. So, you know, it's, it's, things aren't always what they seem. Sometimes the most innocuous things that before I went into the intelligence division had any real awareness to, you know, what terrorism was, you know, most people didn't. We were actually behind the curve on a lot of these things. Um, you know, I would have dismissed it as somebody just being paranoid or, you know, it doesn't make any sense. But after having spent five years there, I find out some of the things that don't make sense turn out to make a lot of sense when you start doing a little bit of digging. Now, Christopher Strom's experience in law enforcement helped stop terrorists' plans to attack America again for years. But the majority of police work is far different than searching for Islamic jihadists who are hiding among our own citizens. And coming up, we'll ask Chris about whether or not racial prejudice is playing a role in routine traffic stops. If you're out on patrol in the NYPD, you're required to have certain, they call it goals, but, you know, it's actually a summons quota. Uh, and then, you know, if you wanted to get a favorable evaluation, um, you know, you had to meet those goals every month, you know, and that, that would be something that they would check off the box on your uh, yearly evaluation. And, you know, depending on the community that you patrolled in, that has a direct correlation with the amount of people that you pull over. That's ahead on CBS Eye on Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now, in our last segment, we started talking about racial issues in America from the perspective of law enforcement. Our guest is Christopher Strom. He's a veteran, a former NYPD intelligence sergeant, and the author of the book Brooklyn to Baghdad. As a veteran that became a cop, he dedicated his professional life to serving our country. And as the NYPD intelligence sergeant, he worked to keep the streets safe from things that most of us never want to see. In this next part, we'll have an honest and frank discussion about police brutality, encounters he's experienced. But we'll begin with the issue that's at the heart of America's racial divide right now. Is it fair to say that there was like a like a prejudicial way people would get pulled over or stopped? Well, I, I, I got to be honest with you. Um, you know, there, there's certain commitments and goals that you have to make, and I'm speaking about patrol now, so I want to make that clear. Yeah. Um, if you're out on patrol in the NYPD, you're required to have certain, they called it goals, but, you know, it was actually a summons quota. Uh, and then, you know, if you wanted to get a favorable evaluation, um, you know, you had to meet those goals every month, you know, and that, that would be, something that they would check off the box on your uh, yearly evaluation, you know, meets goals, standards, activity, arrest. There's a bunch of other things that factor into it. But in terms of the card stop, which everybody's very familiar with, every, I mean, with all the shows that up until recently were still on TV, um, you know, everybody has a sense of what's involved in that. And, you know, depending on the community that you patrolled in, that has a direct correlation with the amount of 
people that you pull over. In other words, if the demographic is, is majority black, it stands to reason that most of the people that are doing traffic violations are probably going to be black. Not because they're black, for the sake of being black, but because they live in that community and it, there's not as many white people in that particular community. But I think if you actually boil down the numbers, and, you know, and I, again, I'm talking from my own personal experience and from, from just my, my working on the streets for over 20 years, the fact that somebody goes out and says, I want to pull over a black guy. Uh, tonight I want to pull over a Chinese guy. It, it doesn't happen. It may seem like that happens and that there's a disproportionate amount, but it's really, I think it's, it's over-exaggerated. Are there bad cops? Are there bad experiences? Are these people making up their bad experiences? No. I'm not, I'm not saying that they are. But what I am saying is that cops do not go out and purposely, 99.9% of them, I'm sure there are some that are just plain out crazy, like this other fellow we saw from Minnesota. But nobody goes out and says, you know, tonight I'm going to write three summonses and I'm going to make sure that they're all black or they're all white or all Chinese because I, that's what I want to do tonight. It just can't happen that way. It's impossible. Hmm. Let's look at another aspect of law enforcement, and like it's another spot where uh, the origin of interaction between a civilian and a police officer happens, and that was the era known as stop and frisk. Yes, I've heard it called uh, that it was that it was a racially motivated theory, and that and 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 that cops were basically looking to stop and frisk black guys more than white guys. Um, I really don't know anything about how it went down or what it was really about. Share with me from the NYPD perspective, what was stop and frisk and did it start a real problem racially? Well, it's one of the most effective tools that that up until recently they took away. Um, uh, You know, I was in an anti-crime unit, which now recently they just did away with the anti-crime where they suspended all anti-crime, which is a plainclothes operation, smooth car, um, at precinct level, and I worked in a robbery unit for four years, which that's all we did, uh, stop and frisk. And, and we were basically targeting high-crime areas. Again, if the high-crime area was predominantly black, then a lot of those people that were stopped and frisked were black. Again, if, if these people were uh, conducting themselves in a suspicious or even you know, criminal manner, or what we believe or interpreted to be a you know, criminal manner from a law enforcement perspective, I really didn't care if they were black or white. I, I, I was going to, if I could justify the stop question and then possibly the first. The first is the last phase. You could stop somebody and say, hey, what's your name? What are you doing? And there could be a completely logical explanation of who this person is. Maybe he presents some ID and actually shows that he lives right there in that neighborhood or right on that street for that matter. And so the first would be omitted from that encounter. But, you know, when you have somebody who says, I don't have any ID. Uh, where, where do you live? Oh, I live in uh, Queens, and you happen to be affecting this encounter in Brooklyn. Uh, what's in the backpack? Uh, nothing's in the backpack. From the outward appearance of the backpack, it looks like there might be some tools, or from the weight of it, when he drops it on the ground, you hear the clanging of metal. Well, I don't know what's in the backpack, but he's refusing to tell me what's in the backpack, and now I'm a little bit more than concerned, so maybe I'm looking at him more closely than I was when I first encountered him, and I see something in his waistband, or I see that he's trying to uh, shield his body in a certain way where it prevents me from seeing uh, what's in his jacket or what's under his jacket or, or whatever it might be. And that's where the frisk might come in. 
if the person was white and it's 3 o'clock in the morning and he's behind a, row, uh, a strip mall and he's got a backpack and I don't have any ID and um, he can't tell me where he is, you know, that would be another one of the things that we would ask. Well, where are you right now? Like he would say, they say, I'm on my way home. I go, well, where is home? And they couldn't even give you the name of a street that they were going to be going to. That was in close proximity. So, again, it's not as simple as stop, question, and frisk. But the frisk is what removes the gun. You're not searching for drugs. You're not searching for um, stolen DVDs. You're searching for potentially that this person has a gun, that you're going to remove that gun safely so that this person can be you know, placed under arrest and the gun can be removed from the street. Similar to the car stop, I don't think people go out there and necessarily say, I'm stopping this guy because he's black and he's behind the strip mall. It's who's ever behind the strip mall we're stopping. Now, let's go from there, if we could. Let's go from uh, from the initial stop or the initial interaction with the cops to kind of what we're seeing um, with respect to the videos and with respect to social media and this real race revolution that we're re-experiencing again in this country because it's not the first time i mean we've seen this in the 90s we've seen this uh gosh the 70s the 60s uh you know you pick a decade and there's been there's been this friction that erupts explain to me kind of why do you think it is that some of these encounters end in murder well i mean i don't know what again what the demographic breakdown is so let's just let's just start from how many white police officers are as there are compared to black police officers. Uh, I know there was some statistical data that was put out recently that there was, um, and I think Fox reported it, that there were 19 shootings of unarmed black men uh, within the past year. I think it was FBI statistics 2019. So don't quote me on that, but I believe that's what I, I, I read and what I saw. And of those shootings of unarmed black men, nine were conducted by black police officers. So again, if you boil it down even more to um, what is the percentage of black police officers versus white police officers versus the state and the, then the city and then the actual department, I don't know that there's a proportionality uh, disconnect there. In other words, I don't know that there's so many more white people shooting black police officers, according to those statistics, it's about 50-50, but if you break it down to where there's more, if there's, and there, there is more white police officers than there are black police officers, then it, it seems like the black police officers seem to be shooting more. But again, I don't want to, I'm not trying to, to dodge the question. I'm just trying to get some factual content. Now, obviously, this issue is incredibly complex and nothing we can even do on this radio segment can begin to cover how difficult this is. But as America grapples with how to address racism in our country, I found Chris's final thoughts seem to sum up our national debate really well. When people are mad at each other, if you ever had an argument with your wife, which you probably never have, but I've had a few with mine, <laughs> or, or disagreements, maybe that's a better way of putting it. Amen. You know, yeah. when, you're, when you're both excited, you can't really have a constructive conversation. There's got to be some, some, some clarity, and there's got to be some calm tones. And, you know, you, you can't say, okay, you know, as, a, as an independent, uh, non-biased person who's not black or who's not white or whatever, all right, you, got, you guys are going to sit in the room and hash this out. I mean, that sounds good in theory. But people are people, and people have emotions, and people have feelings, and people have a belief and value system that may be slightly different than yours. And that doesn't make, make them a bad person or, or a good person. It just means we can have a different opinion. But, you know, at the end of the day, we've got to love each other. We've got to help each other. We just can't, you know, dismiss people because we, we disagree with them. And we can't just, you know, 
they were going to defund the cops because the cops are, uh, you know, they're all bad. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's nonsense. It's, it's nonsense. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now we'll end this hour with a look back at history. On June 18, 1967, an Army veteran took the stage at the Monterey Pop Festival in Northern California. The festival started what became known as the Summer of Love, and this airborne veteran's performance changed rock and roll forever. So we'll pick back up with the conversation I had with my colleague Rod Rodriguez about the legendary... Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> well, there's a lot to unpack, so let's start with uh, James Marshall Hendrix from Seattle. Tell me how he ended up joining the Army. Well, he ended up joining the Army uh, due to, he was, it, was that, it was that time in our history uh, during the Vietnam War, during this period where uh, you could serve time in prison or jo- or. or be forced to join the army. Um, I think that's an interesting dichotomy, uh, army service or prison life. It kind of gives you an idea of what maybe the perception was of army life in general. Uh, but the idea <laughs> right. was that, uh, army would give you discipline. Uh, so yeah, he stole cars, uh, and the judge gives him this, this sentence, like join the army or go to prison for stealing cars. Now, where did he end up? He, he actually goes to basic training in Fort Ord, which is kind of cool for me because uh, I was stationed at DLI. And right outside of DLI, just up the way, you have Fort Ord, where uh, the housing area, even though Fort Ord has been deactivated, the housing area is still active. So people that are stationed at DLI or, or the Presidio, they actually get housed at Fort Ord. So that's where Jimi Hendrix went to basic training. Oh, Wow. Who knows? I might have I might have uh, walked over an obstacle course or uh, a now defunct uh, shooting range that that he he possibly used. So from there, he gets stationed to the 101st Airborne Division, uh, the 101 Screaming Eagles. Well, he never made it very far in the army, though, and he certainly never made it to Vietnam with the 101st. Uh probably because he wasn't a very disciplined soldier. Tell me in your research what you discovered about Jimi Hendrix, the soldier. Well, I don't think anyone's going to be that surprised to find out that Jimi Hendrix, the soldier, wasn't the best of soldiers. <laughs> so, and, and it has nothing to do with his, his proficiency as a soldier per se, but has everything to do with a mind obsessed with music. So we're talking about a person who was thinking music, thinking guitar, the moment he wakes up to the moment he goes to sleep, everything was music. That doesn't leave a whole lot of room for army life or soldiering or professional or military professionalism in general. One of the things I thought was really cool that you sent me actually was this quote uh, from Hendrix uh, from one of the letters to his father. He wrote in this one clip you sent, there's nothing here, man, but physical training and harassment for two weeks. And then when you go to jump school, you get hell. They work you to death, fussing and fighting. That was terrible. That was the wor- <laughs> we're gonna get emails about this. That hey, was man. terrible. Hey man, what's up, brother? I hey, didn't know man. Jimi Hendrix was a beach bum. <laughs> uh, what is this? He sound- I, That's what I think he sounds like from what I've seen. But anyways, no. <laughs> hey man, what's up, Daddy O? 
Okay, so uh, in another letter, he actually wrote his dad asking for Betty Jean. What is that? Betty Jean was his guitar. Again, we're talking about a different era and in a different mindset. Jimi Hendrix was not your average person. Jimi Hendrix was Jimi Hendrix before we knew who Jimi Hendrix was. And from what I understand, Betty Jean, uh, his red guitar that he wanted his dad to send him so he could, you know, begin playing gigs and 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 start doing some, you know, some music off bass. Uh, Betty Jean's inspiration, his name comes from uh, Betty Jean Morgan, his girlfriend back in Seattle. Like he named that's his right. guitar after his girl. So that's cool. All right, let's get into a little bit more about uh, Hendrix as a soldier and basically what led to his end. So what led to his end in the U.S. Army is a bit of one of those American myths, this American legend. What happened? What are the circumstances that led to his departure from the Army? So I have here a document from part of his discharge paperwork. All right, so it says here, reasons for the action recommended. Behavior problems. Requires excessive supervision while on duty. Little regards for regulations. Apprehended masturbating in platoon area while supposed to be on detail. (laughs) So there is some controversy about the legitimacy of documents that that are that look like this. This one looks I'm not a document expert. I mean, to me, it looks initially pretty legit. It's dated 31 May 62. It's a request for discharge uh, to the commanding officer of the 101st Airborne Support Group. It looks legit. Who knows? I mean, yeah, I've heard uh, you were you and I were talking about that there are other documents floating around that don't necessarily mention in the platoon area. Yeah, there's one I've seen uh, dated uh, May 24th, 62 from Hendrix's platoon sergeant, James C. Spears. And the report states that uh, he has no interest in the army whatsoever. It is, in my opinion, that Private Hendrix will never come up to the standards required of a soldier. I feel that the military service will benefit if he is discharged as soon as possible. And uh, a year later, Captain Gilbert Bachman uh, had enough of Hendrix. And although he was signed up for three years of service, uh, I guess he turned his ankle uh, during a parachute jump and was injured. And so it was at that time uh, that this Captain Gilbert Bachman uh, recommended uh, a discharge for him. And he got an honorable discharge, which is what's interesting about the document you have that is a different date and a different year, frankly. Um, It's also an honorable discharge. So here's what I think. Uh, and this is, again, I, I don't know the details. I'm sure there's a Jimi Hendrix expert out there whose head is about to explode. But what I think happened is in 62, Jimmy's being Jimmy. He's giving the, the, the middle finger to the man and authority. Probably did get caught. Um, <laughs> yeah, in the platoon area. Yeah. <laughs> the CO at the time says, oh, you're out of here, Hendrix. And writes this request for discharge. But again, thinking about that time frame, the era, it's not like they have an abundant, they have a surplus of people. So they're probably trying to retain, retain folks. So this initial request for discharge probably either gets denied or, or whatever. But essentially, I think that this, I think it's very possible this request for discharge is real. Hmm. And that other circumstances happen afterwards that give Private Hendricks an opportunity to leave. So he twists his ankle. You know what? Let's let Mr. Hendricks out. Well, I absolutely love it. And coming from a guy that wasn't the most squared away E4, I have a little bit of, uh, I feel Hendricks is a little bit of a kindred spirit, brother man. I feel like I kind of could get down with Jimmy. And uh, We're getting so many emails. <laughs> 
I love it, man. And I love the fact that uh, you did a little research for this segment. Rod Rodriguez, you can be found doing all the podcasts. Uh, find the audio section on ConnectingVets.com and hear your great work. And I'll leave you with one final quote, one, one, one final thought, if you will. Although he may not be remembered as the greatest soldier, by putting down the rifle and picking up an axe, he started a revolution to change rock and roll riffs forever. Must be some kind of way out of here. Say the joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Ion Veterans Weekend has been presented by. University of Maryland Global Campus. Choose from 90-plus programs and specializations to accelerate your military or civilian career and find out how our dedicated military and veteran advisors can help you navigate your benefits to save you time and money. University of Maryland Global Campus. Find out how we're made for you. Visit umgc.edu. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.